Good morning once again. There is a whole lot we have to do today. There's really a whole lot to do, so I'm going to waste no time. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of John, the fourth gospel. The book of John, chapter 8. We're going to read verses uh, 31 through 47. Now, today is going to be a little bit different. I am going to do something I normally don't do a whole lot. I'm going to devote a, a significant portion of our time together to doing a little systematic theology with you guys. And you don't have to be overtaken by fear. We do systematic theology all the time in normal conversations about the Bible, in texting conversations, even on Facebook. Call people, everything. When you call Pastor Joe, when you ask Pastor Joe a question about the Bible, you say something, for example, Pastor Joe, is Jesus God? Where do you get this idea that Jesus is God? And he'll say, well, Thomas seems to think he is because he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus apparently agreed with him because he didn't say, you know, don't worship me. We all know that worship is due only to God. The book of Romans says that Jesus is the blessed God, Romans 9.5. The end of the Bible, the last verse in the Bible, the book of Revelation, John ends his book saying with a prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. And we know we are to pray only to, the Lord, to, to, to God. So Jesus is God. So all that Joe did right there in giving you reasons why he thinks Jesus is God is systematic theology. In other words, he's just surveying the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about any subject or a topic or concept. That is what systematic theology is. I'm going to devote um, a significant portion of our time together to doing this because I think it is healthy. We're going to do that with sin, and then it's going to be very healthy for our understanding of this portion of Scripture, which is a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. Imagine that. Jesus debating the religious people once again. Surprise, right? The whole debate seems to revolve around the idea of sin and man's bondage to sin. And Jesus claims to be able to set men free. So if you have your Bibles, please, let's start with verse 31, chapter 8, going through 47. Hear the word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If you were, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Blessed be the reading of God's word to our hearts. May God bless His eternal truth into our hearts. Let us pray. Wow. Father, I thank You for Your Son have given, has, Your Son has given us His Word. I thank You for this hard Word because if it is not because of the Bible, if it, it is not by Your Word, it doesn't take long before we go astray, but we praise You because You have given us Your Word to sanctify us, to correct us, to cause us to know You. Father, we need You. We need You. I need Your Spirit in order for me to preach this hard truth. Without Him, I can do nothing. The congregation needs Your Holy Spirit to understand and welcome the Word of God. So I pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit and act and move in our hearts. Act and move in our hearts. Transform our hearts. Crush pride. Cause us to be humble. If there's any of us here who does not believe the depth of the depravity of man that the Bible teaches... And that we think, if any of us think that we can do this by ourselves, that we can cause others to be saved or manipulate God, or that we can be saved by our own doings, I pray, Lord God, open eyes, soften hearts, so that we can see how beautiful Jesus is and the fact that we can do nothing and we are guilty by nature, but He being God has redeemed us. So I pray, make her good news, good news to our hearts today. In His name, for His glory, is that I pray. Amen. Amen. So once again, Jesus starts His discourse today by right out of the gate, being countercultural. By right out of the gate, shocking those who are said to have believed Him. 
And this is very, very important for us to know because in chapter 6 and in chapter 2, he has already done that. In chapter 2, some were said to have believed him. And chapter 2 of John will say that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. In chapter 6, you know, the famous Jesus Church Shrinkage Seminar, he had thousands of people there, he fed them, and then he made some very hard statements. And he stated their inability to come to God. And he said, no man can come to me unless the Father brings them. By the end of the sermon, only a handful of disciples were there. And they were said to have believed him. From our vantage point in history, we can see that the so-called belief wasn't what the Bible calls saving faith. It was a belief that was limited both in content of what they believed and in duration. It did not endure. It's a belief that enjoyed the bread and the fish that he served and multiplied, but it's not a belief that banked everything they had into the promises of this man who claimed to be God and the eternal fount of joy that was offering himself to them. Here again, Jesus will say the same thing. And I cannot help but to compare it to our contemporary culture. And let's not even talk about anybody else, but my own standards that I find getting lower and lower whenever I distance myself from the Bible. Because someone made a profession of faith, I am tempted to say, come on, to make things easier for people to be disciples of Christ. But Christ Himself doesn't do that. Christ, in verse 31, He starts His discourse making it not easier to believe in Him, not easier to be His disciple, but harder. Because He puts a condition to be in His true disciple. If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciple. But I accepted Jesus. I asked Jesus into My heart. I accepted Jesus. I made a profession of faith. I was baptized. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Didn't that make me a Christian? I made a profession of faith in whatever diverse forms we, we have created in our day. And the best, most optimistic answer I can give is maybe. Maybe is the best I can say. Because Jesus has just said that you are truly His disciple. What He said was not, if you ask me into your heart. He said, you are truly my disciple, if you abide in my word. So I praise God for His word that corrects us and brings us back to the righteous path when we find ourselves lowering the standards of discipleship. Sometimes not even maliciously. But we need Jesus too. We all need to be corrected. We all need to be corrected. And His Word is truth, and His Word sanctifies us. So praise God that He conforms us to the image of His Son continually through His Word. Amen? Praise Jesus 
And he's addressing the ones who believe them. And he makes it harder. I mean, any church growth seminar will say, make it easier, bring them in. But Jesus doesn't do that. The New Testament doesn't seem to follow this model. Jesus Christ is very open that for you to be His disciple, you have to abide, to live, to remain, to continue in His Word, to not depart from His Word, to live in loving obedience. Now, I run the risk of maybe saying something I have said probably a thousand times before, which is that a mere profession of faith does not bring you in the kingdom of God. It just does not. A mere profession of faith is just a profession of faith. What does bring you into the kingdom of God is a possession of faith. We have to possess what we profess. I didn't mean for it to rhyme, but we have to possess that which we profess. If we say we belong to Jesus, we have to possess Him. We have to love Him with all we got. Otherwise, we might be deceiving ourselves. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus says. You're my disciple. You're my disciple only if you abide in my word. What are we doing when we give false assurance to people who claim to have believed in Christ, but they seem to live a life that has not been affected or changed or transformed or impacted at all by the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are we doing when we call them brothers and sisters? Are we guilty of giving false assurance to people that are not saved? Because they have said the words, they repeated a prayer, they raised their hands in worship. But they're sinking, drowning in their own sin. We will be accountable for every, for every word and action we take, every word we say. We have to be aware that not everybody, not everybody to, that claims to be a Christian is in fact a Christian, is in fact someone that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit living in their hearts and guiding their every step. We have to be very aware of that for our own selves, because we profess to have been transformed by Christ. We who profess to have been changed by Him, to have believed in Him, we have to be aware that not only a claim will make us an actual believer, for the sake of our own soul, so that we will not deceive ourselves. ourselves. We have to be aware of that truth, for the sake of others, so that we don't give false assurance to lost people. And we have to be aware of that. Above all, because of the glory of God. When people that are not Christ's claim to be Christians, and they go out in the world representing Christ with the badge of ambassador of Christ, and they are not of Christ. It causes damage to our witness. 
It causes damage to the glory of Christ, who is, who in His immense goodness and love has left His throne in heaven and lived as a man on this earth perfectly because none of us could ever, could ever live a perfect life. And He took a punishment that He did not deserve so that anyone who believes would live in eternal joy with Him in heaven, a place prepared for us. The joy of His Father when we never have deserved it. When we don't take His glory seriously, we belittle God. So we have to be aware that a mere profession won't make you an actual Christian. Then we are given a series of consequences in the verse. If you abide in His Word, a few things happen. You are truly His disciples if you abide in the Word. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Only if you abide in His Word. To that... These people will say, no way. What do you mean? What do you mean you're going to be set free? We're not in bondage. I mean, I think it's hilarious. Just as a side note, I think it's absolutely hilarious that they will say that when they're probably surrounded by Roman soldiers that occupy and control their land. I mean, it's crazy that they would say that. It's such a denial because... The Romans were preceded by the Greeks, who also dominated the world. Before that, we had the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. I mean, for goodness sakes, who didn't take them captive? But there's such a depth of denial that they're thinking of, of some like national liberation, that they're saying, we're not, we're not in jail, we're not, we're not captives here. You know, their national pride will say, we can do this. I know that they're here, and on one hand, they, they expect the Messiah to be a liberator. But when Jesus confronts them with their total lack of any ability to free themselves, they'll say, no, 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 no. We can do this. We're sons of Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. We are Descendants of Abraham. What do you mean? You're going to set us free? Jesus, in on, on verse 34, he will say this. I'm going, to, I'm going to read the verse. If you please look at your Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And that is the answer to what do you mean you're going to set us free? is a slave to sin. So now I'm going to devote a long time for us to do some systematic theology. I'm afraid I'm going to go Joe on you a little bit, and you're probably saying, you're not doing it as well as Joe. I know, be nice, okay? I'm the new guy, okay? So we're going to do this, we're going to go slow. I'm going to give you a lot of verses. Maybe you're not going to be able to turn to every single um, one of them. But let's just read Bible. Let's just see what Scripture says. Read Bible. That, that's all we're going to do right now, okay? 
<laughs> I have always said that if you're, if you're a, a, a bad preacher, just make sure you read the Bible a lot in your sermons. You'll be safe. You'll be safe. Uh, so here we go. Verse 34. Jesus Christ has never said an idle word. He's never said anything that was not important. But by his own standard of importance, he says, truly, truly, he prefaces what he's going to say with some emphasis. He's giving emphasis to his words. He's saying, listen to this. It means verily, verily, or most assuredly. Now, if Jesus Christ himself deems this to be important, and he puts some emphasis, and he's saying, listen to this. Most assuredly, we most assuredly should stop messing around and listen to him. And he say, he's saying, you're in bondage to sin. Everyone who commits sin, now, anyone hasn't? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What in the world is this idea of slavery or bondage to sin? The Bible has a lot to say about that. We, many times, we see sin, we have this concept of sin that has to do with stuff we do. After all, the Bible says, do not steal, do not lie. And we do those things, we say, we sinned. One, a little bit less popular, but also very true, is the things we don't do that we are supposed to do and we just don't do. I mean, the Bible says that if you are, you know, uh, uh, doing your, your sacrifices, bringing your offerings to God, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice there, leave your offerings there, go to your brother, reconcile with him, and then you go worship God. Don't come worshiping God when there's enmity, when there's, there's some kind of contempt, there's some fight with your brother who Christ died for. The Bible says that we are supposed to reconcile. If you know that to be true, if you know you're supposed to do that and solve the situation, ask for forgiveness from your brother or sister, and you don't do it, that is just as disobedient of, as breaking any other commandment on the doing side. It is just as disobedient of, as stealing or lying. When you're supposed to reconcile, you know the command, it's coming to you, and you just don't go there. You see, you know what, I'm not going to do it, I can't do this. Sins of omission and sins of omission. So in a sense, we can say that, that sin is the unrighteous stuff that we do. And sin is also the righteous stuff we know we are supposed to do, but don't. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. The Bible shows us a lot of them. But we cannot limit sin to the realm of doing or not doing stuff because the Bible doesn't. Holy Scriptures do not limit sin to the doing, acting realm of life, of existence. God is very concerned with the disposition of your heart. God is very concerned with motivations of obedience. You say, but I, I obey God, I do this, I do that. You know, God is concerned with your heart much before 
He is concerned with your hands and feet. God will not. He, he will accept. He will uh, uh, deal with obedience, you know, lack of obedience, or stumbles in behavior of a heart who is His. He will accept that. Stumbles in behavior from a heart that is His. But He will not accept obedience from a heart that is not. When you are His, He helps you to walk. You fall, He takes you up again. When you are not His, don't think you can trick God into your debt. Don't think that because you're being a good boy, God owes to save you. Because our condition is much, much, much worse than that. And even the so-called good things we do. And there are many good things that God has allowed us to do in the realm of society. And towards other human beings, those things can be called good. But as far as meriting anything from God, any spiritual good before God, we don't have anything we can offer God or that impresses God, that puts God in our debt. Because of the sin of Adam, we all have inherited a sinful nature. All of us. No exception. This sinful nature is, is a disposition of the heart that is at odds with God even before or without performing any action at all. Even without doing anything, there's a disposition of the heart that is already against God, alienated from God. Wayne Grudem, in his fantastic systematic theology, has been so helpful to me in, in, in the last few years. If you don't have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, do yourself a favor. Repent and go get one. Okay? You have questions... You're not understanding the Bible on a certain subject, a certain matter. Okay, it, Joe is only one person. He can only take so many phone calls. Ask Grudem, sit down, look at a subject, sin, marriage, whatever it is, he probably addressed. What is this Trinity business? Let me understand it better. It, it, it's just so helpful. Read it slowly. It's not an, an uh, ivory tower of education, higher education. It's written for us. Trust me, if I understand it, trust me, you will. So repent, go get one. But he defines, in his systematic theology, he defines sin this way. And I quote, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. End quote. God is very much concerned with the state of the immaterial part of our being. We are not only bodies. God has made us with a material side and an immaterial side. And He is concerned with the whole being. He is concerned with the motivation of our hearts. I mean, look at the law of God. You shall love the, lo you shall love the Lord your God. First commandment. You shall not covet. Now, coveting... It's something that happens in the, the untangible, okay? It, it, it happens not in the tangible realm of existence. After all, it is, isn't it possible for you to covet your neighbor's stuff in broad daylight in front of people and no one would notice? 
But God, it is possible. Now, if that coveting becomes action and you go to your neighbor and you steal it, then he'll notice. Snatch it out of his hand, then he'll notice. He sees you fleeing with his donkey, he'll notice. But coveting, it happens in the motivational side. It happens in the heart. It happens with the lust of the eyes. It happens in the mind. And God is very much concerned with it. And he says, don't do it. Do not break my moral law. Do not break my moral command. He's just as concerned with it as he is with, you know, building images, sculptures of false gods and prostrating yourself to them. Both laws made top ten. He's just as concerned with the motivation and the actions. And this is horrible, horrible news. Because all of us have inherited the sinful nature of Adam. This is what King David says about God being concerned with your heart before he's concerned with your hands and feet, with your actions. Psalms 51 verse 17 says this, Sacrifices you do not desire, but a broken and contrite heart will not, you will not cast away. And we know this. We all know this. How many of you, or I have, I'm going to just come clean before. How many of you have committed sins in your mind and heart that your hands didn't even have the time to go and do it? That your feet didn't even have the time to go towards it and perform an action? Before you even did anything, your heart and mind had already drowned in the gutter and you had to repent of your thought life. And no one even knew anything about it. You were alone in the couch watching TV. And you have to repent of your thought life. Very concerned with it. Now, if we can, if we say, we acknowledge that we can break God's law even before actions take place, we are definitely acknowledging that sin is not only doing, but feeling, approving, thinking wicked thoughts, or anything that does not conform to the moral standards of God, either in act, attitude, right, or actual doings. Approving anything contrary to God, and I want to emphasize the nature aspect of it, act, attitude, or nature. External behavior is important. It does matter. The way we live does matter. We are to bear fruit. All of us who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Which manifests itself in, in many different things. Love, joy, peace. Okay? And I love that it says... That this is just a side note. It's free. Um, I love that it says the fruit of the Spirit. You know? It's one fruit. It has all these things. Because... Otherwise, we would be making lists because our hearts are religious. It's just how we are. We'd be making lists. Okay, yeah, in love, I'm kind of down. I've been really joyful. Do I been doing good there in, in that one fruit of the Spirit? No. If, if you are of God, if the Holy Spirit has inhabited your heart, 
you will display all of them. All of them will be present in your life. To the extent that they're not present in your life is the extent that you are not trusting in Jesus to bear fruit in your life. But let, let, let's go back to what we were doing. Okay? Natural men. We have, we have inherited this, this sinful nature from Adam. Okay? Even before we were born, we were already sinners, we were already guilty, already have this sinful disposition towards God, contrary to God. Okay? Now, this does not mean that we are as wicked as we can be, that man is as sinful, as bad as he can be. What it does mean is that all aspects of our being have been infected by this sickness called sin, this enmity towards God called sin, this alienation from God that we call sin. I think one of the best examples of, of obedience that doesn't come from a heart of faith is, is probably Cain and, and Abel. You know, the two brothers, Genesis 4, when they both bring their offerings to God, and God was very much pleased with Abel's offering, not so much with Cain's. And he didn't accept Cain's offering because it came from a heart not of faith. And he made that known. And he said, if you have faith, you would be fine. You'll be out of trouble. And Cain goes on to reveal the true disposition of his heart by murdering his own brother. This sinful disposition spread from Adam to the whole human race, including you and me. We are infected by it from conception, even before we are born. That's what the Bible teaches. King David once again teaches us. Psalms 51 verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth, or, or born, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not talking about his mom's exclusive sin here. He's not washing mom's laundry in public. The context say, says nothing about this being about Dave's mom, David's mom. What David is saying is that since I can remember, before my, my first memory, I was already a sinner. And the Holy Spirit has chosen to inspire a word very important. In sin did my mother, the word is, conceive me. So, at, I mean, wrap your minds around this if you can. At conception, we are already at odds with God. The very first moment of our existence, we are at odds with God. It's horrible news. There is not one second of our existence apart from Christ that we are friends of God. It's a hard truth, isn't it? It gets harder. It gets harder. Not one second of our entire existence in which we are without sin. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, 
when he says that by nature we are children of wrath. If we are sinners, we deserve God's wrath. This message will not make top ten on iTunes. However, I can't avoid what the Bible teaches. I'm just reading scripture. The Apostle Paul says that by nature we are children of wrath. This is the depth, nature, by our very nature. This is the depth of sin, of opposition to God. The verse does not end there. Verse 3 of Ephesians 2 says we are children of wrath together with the rest of mankind. Whew. That's the universality of sin. No one escapes. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul will say, there's not one that is good. No, not even one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks or understands. No one is good. So sin is in our nature, is in the deepest core of our being. And by our, we mean humanities. Everybody who's ever been born has had this nature. Now you probably thought, Jesus didn't. True, amen. He didn't. That is a different sermon. Now, if you went to, to Ephesians, leave your Bible marked there because we will come back there. Psalms 58, verse 3 says this. It, it really affirms man's sinful nature again. Quote, The wicked are estranged from when? From the womb. They go astray from birth. Speaking lies. From the womb, even before I was born, I was going astray. From birth, I was already speaking lies. Anyone who has children knows this experientially. I mean, you don't have to teach your kids to be shady. Who's done that? I mean, when I walk in my living room and I see the triplets with chocolate, I mean, there's chocolate on the ceiling, and you ask, who ate the cookies? And they say, I don't know. I didn't teach them that. I didn't have to. I didn't have to teach him to lie. I mean, I may be a lot of things, but I've never hit my woman, okay? Where is it that they have seen that when they have a disagreement on who's going to play with the Lego, they punch each other in the face? <laughs> Where have they learned? I mean, yesterday, someone got socked in the face, okay? They got socked in the eye. Um, where have they learned that when you have any kind of conflict, violence is the way to solve it. Maybe. <laughs> you know, Bella, pick up your toys. She goes, you pick it up. You know, she says that to Lillian. I turn around. You know, I don't want to have to testify against my wife, okay, in court. I, I just turn around and let them then... I let them deal with it. But I haven't had to, to teach them any of that. 
Because they're shady by nature. They just are. Okay? You have, I have, and I, I believe you have put zero effort into teaching them how to lie, cheat, and steal, and cover for each other's sin. Okay? Because they are shady by nature. This sinful nature can be described as a lack of any spiritual good before God. Just a few scriptures, okay? I'm going to read again. Is anybody almost falling asleep? A lot of reading, okay. Um, just a few scriptures. Romans 7, 8, 7, 18 says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Titus 1, 15 to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jeremiah 17.9, talking about the heart of men, the very core of man's being, the center of emotions and desires, okay? And, and, and thoughts and doing. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4.18 They are darkened. Those that haven't believed in Christ. Those that are not in Christ. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why, Paul? Due to the hardness of their heart. Out of this sinful nature that I just described in all these verses, out of this sinful heart comes our desires and actions. Now, like I said, we do things that can be good, that can be called good in, in, in the civil level, in, in acting with the good works towards our neighbors, okay? But they, they do not merit anything from God because all these, e even these good works, if they are apart from faith, they cannot please God at all. We live apart from God in a state of utter sinfulness, radical corruption that is in every aspect of our being. So the Bible comes, Ephesians 11.6 will say that without faith... It is impossible to please God. Think about the depth of this verse. There are billions of people on earth today doing things without faith in Jesus Christ. There are millions, maybe billions of people doing good things, important things for humankind, seeking the cure for cancer, for AIDS, doing uh, um, benefits for Africa. Okay, for third world countries, bringing medicine and bringing food. Humanitarian relief, and that is important. And we value it. But we cannot trick ourselves into thinking that that is meriting them more than the blood of God's own Son. If anything could merit God's favor... If we had anything in us that we could do or be that could merit God's favor, Jesus Christ wouldn't have to die a death He didn't deserve. He wouldn't have to absorb God's wrath on the cross if there was any other way. This cup of wrath 
would have passed from him. But it didn't. He chose to die a death on the cross for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the death on a cross. Because as we are seeing, there isn't much we can do by nature. Whatever is not, fa- it's not a faith is sin. Romans 14.23 I mean, whatever we have to offer to God, if it doesn't come from a heart that is filled with love for Him and trust in Him, is as filthy rags in His holy presence. I mean, do we really think that because we haven't murdered anyone, God owes us eternity with Him? The only fountain of eternal joy, inexhaustible fountain of eternal joy, who came at a great cost, namely the blood of His own Son, we really think that because we haven't murdered anyone, we deserve that from God? I know that we are tempted to, but if you look at it, put emotions aside, it sounds, it sounds absurd to think that if there was any other way, if my own good works could do it, God would have sacrificed His own Son. I mean, anything we do, if it's not out of a heart that is filled with love and trust in God, it avails nothing. The best, I mean, at best, what natural men or those who haven't trusted Christ for their eternal joy and salvation and redemption, the best we can attempt, the best we can achieve in that, in that state is an empty obedience that might avail the good of humankind, the good of neighbor, the good of self, for time but never for eternity. Never causing God to owe us anything. I mean, do you understand that we are trapped in a state in which we cannot, apart from Jesus, stop offending God? I mean, the issue is not even how much have you seen, sinned. The issue is, apart from Christ, we do nothing that is not Sin. We have never done anything that is not sin apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from abiding in His Word. We are enemies of God just by existing. Can we agree that this is horrible news? This is horrible news to know that we are guilty by nature and we cannot do anything to free ourselves from this predicament. It is even worse news to know that God is the only one that can deliver us from this state and in our sinful nature, in our sinful state and heart, we aren't even able to desire Him. And we prefer to live a life of sin to accept the fountain of eternal joy that offers us our, himself 
to us freely of any charge. Jesus Christ has offered to deliver you from this state. And in our sinful nature we say, you know, I'm cool, I didn't cheat on my taxes this year. It's completely and utterly absurd to reject this offer because you think you can get brownie points with God or you don't need God or you don't need the Son of God. It's even worse news to know that He can deliver us, but we do not will. We do not desire Him left to ourselves. We will always reject God. As Ephesians 2 says, again, we are dead in sins and trespasses. That is the word the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit inspired, the Apostle Paul used to describe our spiritual nature, our spiritual state in sin. We are dead. Now picture a box with a dead body. Except Jesus. Except Jesus. Dead men cannot hear. Dead men cannot receive, cannot walk. Dead men is helpless, are helpless. They cannot do anything. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul depicts when he says, We are dead in our spiritual state. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sins and trespasses. Dead men cannot do anything to help themselves. Our spiritual condition from birth is death. When Jesus Christ comments on our nature, when He mentions our nature, back to John chapter 8, verse 34, when He refers to our nature and will, to the state in which we are, the word He uses is slave. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. End quote. Now, a slave doesn't have a desire of his own, doesn't do whatever the slave wants. The slave has and does obey the desire of his master. Now, if we are in this life obeying sin, enslaved in bondage to sin, let me ask you a question. Will sin ever choose Christ, the personification of holiness and righteousness. Do you think we need the mercy of Christ, the grace of God to come to Him? Sin will never choose God. Sin, by definition, isn't even Able to love Christ. Sin is enmity to God. Jesus Christ is the only one who can free us from that state. And He does it as He pleases. He says today that when He frees you, you are free indeed. Indeed. 
praise God. In Christ we are free from this predicament. Isn't grace beautiful when you see the depth of sinfulness? When you see that from our very nature we oppose God? And we know you catch yourselves now on a Tuesday afternoon... Just alone, just loving God, completely in love with Christ, mind-boggled by His goodness and mercy. If you understand the depths of depravity, you can't think that you are there in, in loving Christ and in treasuring Christ because you are brighter than your neighbor who didn't choose Christ. You cannot think that you're smarter, that you made a better decision, or that you are more lucky. As if there was anything such as, such as luck. But you have to praise Jesus for His mercy, whom being equal with God, He did not regard this equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He gave it up. He, he veiled it and He made Himself a man and He lived among us. And He lived a perfect life because we couldn't. This is the life of the gutter that we would always choose. We would never choose Christ. We, by our own nature, we were following the world. And Christ Himself by His own free will, by His own goodness, He has found pleasure in loving you. God has found pleasure in, in setting His affections on you to redeem you from a state of such deep depravity of inability and unwillingness to come to Him. Praise God for His mercy. Salvation is of the Lord, says the Bible, Jonah 2.9. It is a gift of God so that no one would boast. How can I boast of anything if God is the one who gave me life? If I was lifeless in the bottom of the sea and God by Himself, without my help, brought me up to the surface and breathed the breath of life in my nostrils. How can I say I made a better decision than anybody else? There is no place for boasting. We all praise God for He is the Redeemer. Amen? Now, He doesn't deny that these guys they are descendants of Abraham, but He, verse 37, He right away points to the desires of their heart, which is... You want to kill me. I know you're descendants of Abraham, but you want to kill me. What Jesus is saying is that no one has ever entered the kingdom of God by genealogy. It's not biology that brings you to the kingdom of God. But he claims, he states that what brings you into the kingdom of God is doing the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? Faith. The works of faith. When God revealed Himself to Abraham, He did not try to kill the angels. He did not rebel against God. He had faith. The Bible will say that Abraham believed. 
And that was imputed to him as righteousness. Now God himself is revealing himself to them. And what do they want to do? They want to murder him. That's the desire of their heart. And Jesus points to it. If you were children of Abraham, you would be doing what he did. So they are saying, we are in the kingdom. We are sons of God. That's what they mean by Abraham. And, and they'll go ahead to say it if you want to read it. By genealogy. By, you know, I can show you my birth certificate. I can tell you which tribe I'm from. But Jesus, when he defines sonship, he defines it by obedience. You obey loving obedience to God. Some might say, I was born a Christian. I was born in a Christian family. You know, I was baptized, I was confirmed, I did everything. I go to church, I go, I, whatever. And Jesus is saying, you're in the kingdom through faith. And not only believing one day, believing part of what I say, but believe it in me with everything you got. If you're all in and you abide in my word and you're all in forever, and you stay there all in, that's when you're in the kingdom. In other words, I think all that Jesus is saying is, Abraham had faith and you don't. Abraham obeyed God and you want to kill me. It's really not that complicated. You are doing the works that your father did. Do you know what that means? You thought I had run out of hard things to say? That's verse 41. You are doing the works of your father, the works your father did. One of the hardest truths in the Holy Scriptures. It's not an insult as our 21st century American minds would take it to mean or would interpret it if we say it in culture, if you say it on TV. It's really not an insult. It's not a punch below the belt. But it is one of the hardest truths of the Holy Scriptures because it's not an insult, it's not a low blow, but it's a reality. The reality is, verse 44, he answers it. He says, you were doing the works of your father. And then in verse 44, he expounds on it. He'll say exactly what it is. You are of your father, the devil. Now remember I said that Jesus defines sonship as obedience through obedience. Now when we believe like Abraham did and we, we follow what God has said like Abraham did and we abide in his word like Abraham did, we are obeying someone. We are obeying God. Therefore we resemble someone. We resemble God. Now if you're there in... in, in um, Chapter 2 of Ephesians, if you have it marked there. Starting with verse 1, Paul, you know, Ephesians 2 unpacks it a little more for us. And, and I'm almost done. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The devil, following the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit that is now at work. The next word is mind-boggling. Small word. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It is a very hard word. Not because it's an insult, but because it's real, it's true, it's the word of God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The devil has no truth in him. When he speaks the lies regarding the eternal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he speaks the lies that deceive people, we believe. One, because he is good and he's speaking out of his own character and his own resources. And it's almost inexhaustible, the fountain of lies that he has, the supply of lies that he has to deceive people. He's very good at it, but we believe it because the voice is coming from within. For he is at work, at or in, not at, but in the sons of disobedience. That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying to know that the devil can disguise himself as, as like in your mind, as the, the still small voice, as the warm feeling, fuzzy feeling in the heart that tells you, it's okay, you don't love her anymore. You guys are incompatible. Susie from Human Resources, you really click with her. You know why we believe it? Apart from Jesus, is because the voice comes from the, the inside. I better hurry up. The voice comes from the inside, and it's scary. I'm not stronger than the devil. Who can beat the devil? I can't. Jesus Christ can set you free. The other thing that does not leave us any excuses. Not, we are not any robots. We're not being made robots because the devil does this and the devil does that. You know, in, on judgment day we may say, the devil made me do it. I didn't have any power. He deceived me. I didn't want to do it. And Jesus will say, hold on. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He could have said, you do the, desi you do the desires of your father, the devil. You do the works of your father, the devil. He did not say that. What did he say? He said, your will is to do the desire of the devil. It's mind-boggling that in our sinful state, we're volunteers in the kingdom of darkness. We do it happily. We march away from God and we are delighted in doing it. You sin and you bring more people to sin with you because sin is what you live for. Living apart from God. They don't understand it. Verse 33, they, they, they don't get what Jesus is saying. Now, I want to say that Jesus is the best preacher that has ever walked on the face of the earth. Why is it that they can understand it? Can't Jesus be clear? I do think that sometimes he doesn't try to be clear just so they won't understand, but that's a different sermon. But can't he be clear? Of course he can. Of course he can make people understand. 
They can't understand it, verse 44, because they can't bear to hear it. There's a rejection, a personal rejection. And it is because the devil is at work. It is because the devil is at work. That doesn't excuse us because we do it willingly. Your will is to do that. Now, just one quick, I'm just going to open a can of worms for home group maybe. The will, what we want to do, our volition, is always subject to nature. The nature always desires, and then the will does it. The will cannot do anything contrary to its nature. A pig does not desire a pearl necklace because it's not of its nature. Okay? We don't desire to eat what the pigs eat because it's not of our nature. The will always serves the nature and obeys the nature. Now, if, if we have this sinful nature that is at odds with God, always our will, our doing will always be, no matter what it is, if it's feeding the poor or, or committing adultery, it's always doing things that are in opposition and contrary to God because it is serving the sinful nature. The will will always serve the nature. So we do wicked things because the nature desires wicked things. And that is a rejection, I mean, to Jesus. The very reason we reject Jesus is because He is the truth. Why do you reject me? Why don't you accept me? Verse 45. Because I speak the truth. The very reason why we don't want Him, why we don't believe in Him, is because He's saying the truth. Now, in, in, in the end, it's really not that complicated. It's so emotional. It's so deep. But if you look at it in a, in a scriptural sense, just looking at it and understanding what's being said, He says, verse 47, and we will end here. He says, um, the reason, I mean, those who are of God will hear the words of God, will understand and accept the word of God. The reason why you don't accept the word of God is because you are not of God. So those who are of God will come to God. Those who aren't will willingly reject God always. That's how Jesus closes this section of Scripture. Now I hope I did a good job in and showing you how beautiful the grace of Christ is. The worse the news is about our sin, about our sinful nature, about our state in which we live apart from Christ, the best news the gospel is. Because the, 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 the bad news is horrible, the good news is great. When you realize that you cannot do anything in God Himself without you even knowing He comes down from heaven and He brings you back to life and He reveals Himself to you. He opens your eyes. He gives you ears to hear. He gives you a new heart of flesh that has affections and is, is caref affections for Him and is careful to obey His commands. And you did nothing for it. And now you have 
this eternal fountain of delight given to you. And you have the privilege and freedom to serve Him and to love Him and to obey Him. And you will be free even from the presence of sin in eternity, glorifying and praising Him as happy as you can possibly be. And Jesus did it all by Himself for you. You have to explode in praise. Because this does not change the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ of whosoever will come and drink freely of the fountain of eternal life. I hope that you are drinking of this fountain today. And I hope that you abide in His Word. And if there's any doubt in your heart that your sins are not forgiven, that you haven't come to Him, what better time than today? Come to, how about right now? Trust in Jesus for your eternal joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I went long again. I can't believe I get to preach the good news of the gospel. Such an unworthy servant in you by your mercy has. You have trusted me with this beautiful message. Trusted all of us who claim your name. I thank you that you bring us, bring us your word and that you sanctify us through the truth. Your word is truth. And I thank you that you move in our midst. And that you have given your son to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf, on our behalf and to be resurrected and risen again for our justification. And through that, we are your sons. So I pray, God, cause us to worship. Take hold of our hearts today and forever. For Jesus' sake, amen.